This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Well, the Federal Reserve made it official yesterday that the bond buying programs that the central bank have used for the last couple of years to boost the economy would come to an end at the end of this month. But it hasn't written out the terminology from its vocabulary altogether. In a statement yesterday after its latest FOMC meeting, the Fed uh, mentioning that it could return to using the program should the economy need it. So what does this all mean for the U.S. economy and especially in the wake of the GDP number earlier today? Krista Schwartz is an associate assistant professor of finance here at the Wharton School. She also has an upcoming paper about the topic called The Mechanism of Quantitative Easing. And we welcome Krista to the studio. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you very much for having me. The initial thought uh, is that the economy is doing better and really doesn't need that stimulus anymore. Your reaction to that? So, um, I mean, there are a range of views on the extent to which QE has helped the economy, if at all. Um, and so I, I think that gauging how how the economy is going to proceed going forward now that QE has stopped um, is going to depend on, you know, what your expectation is for that is going to depend on the extent to which you think that QE has um, improved conditions thus far. I think um, the Fed's stance remains accommodative. They have uh, said that they're going to keep the um, – target rate between zero and a quarter percent for uh, quite some time. Of course, they leave themselves open to flexibility to, you know, make that a shorter or longer period of time as they see fit, as conditions change. Um, So I think that given they don't anticipate, um, they they have said that they're going to reinvest the maturing proceeds of the portfolio. Um, They're going to keep it around four and a half trillion dollars where it is now. And so I think that, um, you know, conditions should uh, largely remain as they have been and, and continue to improve. I mean, we've been seeing this kind of slow and steady growth out of the economy the last, uh, what, about 18 months or so. And, and it, it seems like we are still very much in, in a slow and steady path that we are, we've been seeing. And it doesn't look like it's going to change in the immediate future, does it? So... That's true. Um, it is a slow and steady path. It outpaces what we see in, in the euro area and yeah. what we see in Japan. So it's you, you never know the counterfactual. Um, in other words, had we not had the entire quantity of QE, would we be contracting right now or yeah. would growth be at zero? Um, I think the real risk to the outlook right now is inflation, and that has yeah. remained below the Fed's two percent uh quote-unquote target and so you know depending on how the the inflation picture evolves i think that is going to determine you know how slowly or quickly um this accommodative stance will be pared back what would we see then would uh, that would actually push that inflation rate closer to two percent what would happen within the economy to get to that point 
<laughs> or how many things would happen. Yeah. So, you know, there's headline inflation and there's core inflation. And right now we've seen a big drop in oil prices, um, which has affected headline. And then core, you subtract out food and you subtract out oil, these things that swing pretty drastically. Mm -hmm. um, so it gives you a smoother picture of inflation. And um, your question was, how would... Yeah, what would we see? Like, uh, I mean, would it be uh, a, a sharp rise in the oil prices that would kind of lead to the inflation or the rise of inflation? Or what would it be? So certainly a sharp rise in oil prices, a sharp rise in food prices is going to, you know, if we have um, some kind of crop failure that causes a spike in food prices, um, orange freezing in Florida, um, or clearly something related to OPEC and, and oil, then that's going to increase um, headline dramatically. It won't do much, if anything, to core, um, in so much as those prices perhaps have some knock-on effect to other prices. But I think what we would need to see um, is, you know, demand um, and an increase in demand um, from the economy. And, and that's something that, unfortunately, you know, ha has been struggling yeah. uh, thus far. And obviously part of that is tied to the fact that a lot of Americans are are still battling with their wages. They, you know, they don't see the wage growth that they would like to see. Uh, it's obviously, you know, it's not all of Americans, but there is a good sector of, of the American public that is battling right now to uh, to basically be able to make ends meet. Yeah, that's true. So wage growth is something in particular that has not um, been rising at the pace that uh, I think policymakers would like it to. And so that's indeed true that. Um, you know, there there are just uh, structural things in place, well, not just structural, there are cyclical things in place as well um, that are preventing those uh, numbers from rising further. So, for instance, the, the recent dollar strength um, that, uh, you know, causes U.S. assets to be more expensive, causes U.S. goods to be more expensive, hurts, uh, hurts exporters. Um, and to the extent that asset markets benefit from, you know, overseas purchases mm -hmm. um, and that individuals benefit from higher asset prices if they're holding portfolios, then that um, is also weighing on the outlook. A lot of people that are maybe involved in Wall Street to some level uh, that are kind of following this path from the outside will see Wall Street seems like it reacts obviously very much. Uh, every time there is a quote-unquote announcement of any kind by the Federal Reserve. And a lot of times, especially in the last two years, it has been Wall Street maybe being hypersensitive to a potential statement by the Federal Reserve, by Ben Bernanke and now Janet Yellen, as to whether or not interest rates are going to be bumped up, what's going to happen with that. But, but we haven't seen that. And as you alluded to, it doesn't look like we're going to see that, at least through the first half of 2015, I would think, correct? Right. So I think you're, you know, in part referring to the taper tantrum from yeah. last summer yeah. when there were wild speculations about when it would begin, yep. how, how quickly it would go, and what would happen. And asset prices did move pretty dramatically. The 10-year Treasury yield rose about 20 basis points right away, and yep. then through the rest of the next couple of months, it rose about a full percentage point. Um, following 
that immediate speculation. And there are, there, um, I think the, the responses to the announcements or the responses to speculation gives us an idea of how markets might react once this takes hold. Sure. Um, but at the same time, it's a it's certainly premature response. So since that rise in yields um, last summer, yields have largely stayed at the same level. Mm-hmm. And you would expect, all else equal, that continued QE, which ha- you know has continued over the last year, even amid tapering, um, that that would have brought yields slightly lower. But there was just so much of a, a response to speculation about it that it was already priced in. Um, and so with the with interest rates rising um, or with an expectation that that could happen, markets are going to be very sensitive to any speeches that Fed presidents make, yeah. any allusion to conditions. They The Fed certainly gives themselves a lot of latitude in being able to change their mind. They always, yeah. you know, condition every statement that they make um, very heavily. But within the, the Federal Reserve and the regional uh, Fed presidents, there still was some dissent as to whether or not that the asset purchases should be stopped this month or whether they should continue on for a little while, even at the low levels, which I think was at, at what, $5, five billion a month at, at that point? Right, indeed. Um, so Narya Kachalakota dissented at this past meeting, um, and that dissension was because he thought that uh, QE should continue further and should be even larger. Um, the dissension, there were two presidents or two FOMC members that <clears throat> dissented at the last meeting, and both of them were on the other side of the rail. So we've certainly seen a shift in, um, you know, the relative Fed, Fed, Fed actions or Fed announcements relative to um, FO, FOMC members' I guess, consensus views. Right. How important then, as a lot of us go forward and kind of look at these numbers from the outside, in in terms of the data that we see come out on a daily, or I should say on a monthly basis or even on a weekly basis, what are the one or two reports out there that really are kind of the the way for the general public to maybe understand what this process is better? I mean, obviously the monthly jobs report number is is a very important number. Uh, I have believed now, especially for the last several months, that the labor participation rate is a very important report, maybe even more so than the actual unemployment number because Mm -hmm. of the fact that so many people have basically dropped out of the workforce. Yeah, so that's um, certainly that's been something that um, Janet Yellen has focused on uh, much more heavily, the labor participation rate, and that even though unemployment has fallen, we still have we have you know discouraged workers who aren't even looking for jobs anymore, and so yeah. they're not reflected in this low unemployment rate. Um, the Fed's mandate overall, it is you know they were established by the Federal Reserve Act, and they have this statutory mandate to Congress. It's basically stable prices um, and you know full growth and employment, and so. Their ability to affect those two, I think that their ability to affect growth and employment is going to be largely via this price stability, mm-hmm. and they recognize that. 
Um, so you often hear the Fed um, being mentioned as having a very blunt tool to affect the economy. Sure. And it's, you know, it's true. It's it's sort of the way I was thinking of it um, the other day was that it's the equivalent of donating to a large charity versus actually going in the soup kitchen and doling out the, the meals yourself. Sure. You are, you know, addressing this huge issue with something that's going to work through asset prices. It's going to work through either the dollar or the equity markets or interest rates. It's going to work through one of those three channels. Mm -hmm. But it's not like you're making a specific tax cut or you're addressing certain labor issues, which is more the purview of fiscal policy um, and the the Treasury and the government. So um, where does that leave us? (laughs) Well, it leaves us in in a spot where we're in an economy that, as we alluded to before, it's growing at a slow pace. Yes. And it seems like that this is a process that, I guess, when the Federal Reserve winds down the asset purchases at the end of this month, knowing the fact that they understand that they need to keep this basically on the back burner as a possibility kind of gives you the feeling that, yeah, we are still a long way from from where we were, say, a decade or two decades ago in terms of the economy and the growth of this country. So I think that's true. Um, We had a financial crisis, which is much different than any typical recession. Um, And so we've had just this massive disruption, this massive elimination of wealth, um, this massive sort of uh, policy and structural shift in how things are, are working right now. And you have investors, you have firms, you have individual investors that are all very risk averse. And so everyone is trying to save. And so that's in part why the demand isn't there, because you have this competition for um, holding cash and yeah. for delevering. Um, and so it, that is something that needs to subside over time. Um, I think it will. I think we're not 100% out of the danger zone. Yeah. Um, we're certainly much further away from it than we were you know, last year or two years ago or three years ago. Um, but it's a gradual process. And given the massive shock that we had in 08, 09, um, I actually think, you know, like I said before, we're relative to the euro area, relative to Japan, we're doing quite well. Yeah. Um, so I... I <laughs> And when you say relative to those areas, especially Europe, you know how poorly they are doing. Right. Because basically they are in a worse off spot than than the United States was at the bottom of its recession, correct? Yeah. So they had not just the knockoff effects and, you know, part participation in the financial crisis that we had, but then they furthermore had their own currency crisis slash sovereign debt crisis. And so that plus it's more difficult for them to respond policy wise, you know, in contrast to the Federal Reserve that can make decisions on behalf of the U.S. Yeah. um, The ECB just doesn't have that same power and mandate. And you have the Federal Reserve, you know, buys treasuries, buys MBS now. Those countries all issue their own sovereign debt. And so purchasing that, which country do you purchase it from? How much do you purchase at what prices? Um, and coordinating with all the different fiscal policies um, amongst those. It's, it's, it's very, you know, not to say that the Fed and the Treasury necessarily coordinate their policies, um, as we've seen over the last few years, but 
in the euro area, it's that much more difficult. We're talking with Krista Schwartz, who is assistant professor of finance here at the Wharton School. So I guess then from that perspective, it, it seems like it will be tougher for Europe to come out of its issues than it than the U.S., because of the fact that you have all these different entities that are involved in this, and it's not like, as you alluded to, it's not the Fed overseeing the entire country. The ECB can do what it can do, but in the end, Germany's going to make their own decisions. France is going to make, Spain is going to make their own decisions. In the end, it, it's fragmented in, in, in a lot of respects. That's exactly right. Yeah, um, it's fragmented. The ECB has a sort of a more narrow mandate. Um, they are kind of bound to their inflation target, and so that's really driven a lot of what they've done. The Fed, on the other hand, you know, while it has this inflation target, that's not explicitly its mandate. And yep. so it's, it's much more flexible in that way. It sort of imposed it, didn't impose, but suggested that this was the level at which they saw prices being stable in the long run. Um, and in the euro area, indeed, uh, you have Germans who are up in arms about you know, the perception that they're subsidizing other Euro area countries that are doing <laughs> right. less well. Um, and so there's a lot of inter, I guess, inter-country conflict of where the money's coming from and who it's going to then. And if it's not staying within your own country, you know, we don't have a lot of, Congress certainly um, has criticized the Fed um, and, you know, the popular press has criticized the Fed for steps that it's taken. Mm -hmm. But you don't have complaints about, you know, funds that California has raised are going to uh, Arizona or, you know, those similar types of things. But that's effectively what it is in in the euro area. The QE uh, movement w was really uh, one of the last big things that, that Ben Bernanke, obviously he did a lot. Uh, but it, it's it's part of his legacy uh, as, as the Federal Reserve chair. What was the general consensus on the job that Mr. Bernanke did? Obviously, he he was in office in a very tough time for the United States. So I, I think consensus is that he did what was needed at the at the time and that it was an innovative um, measure to be taken um, when faced with interest, short horizon interest rates, the, the policy tool that the Fed has historically used, um, you know, wasn't able to be pushed any further. Mm -hmm. Short-term interest rates at zero, um, you can't bring them, you can't bring nominal rates any lower. <laughs> That's right. And so I, I think the, that we'll be left with and that we are left with, uh, you know, feeling about, um, Chairman Bernanke's tenure as a successful um, successful response to what he faced during his time as chairman. And so then, now Janet Yellen has been in, in office now for a few months, and obviously she is trying to, in some respects, continue the work that Mr. Bernanke did, but also kind of lay, lay the groundwork for some of the uh, beliefs that she has as well. What really is her path that she needs to take over the next couple of years? <laughs> that she needs to take? Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's a loaded question right well, there. Well, so I guess some of the things that uh, Chairman Bernanke had introduced were, for instance, this 2% inflation target. Sure. He was That was sort of his um, you know, research topic from the decades ago. 
Um, he's always been fascinated with and focused on inflation and to some extent a deflation as well and, you know, depressions and crises. So that was fortuitous that he was in charge at the time that all of this was happening. Mm -hmm. Now, Janet Yellen, on the other hand, she um, has done a lot of research and her background is in labor markets. And so we, you know, you may notice that we've heard a lot more about labor markets sure. um, since she's since she's taken over. Um, you know, you would ask before which were the indicators that are most important to watch. Um, I didn't directly answer that question yeah. because I, I, I think it's difficult for as much as they, you know, care about labor markets and want them to improve, it's difficult for the Fed directly to affect that. Mm -hmm. And so they can indirectly do that by supporting conditions with long-term price stability. Um, but the thing that they can directly affect clearly is, um, is inflation. You know, they're printing the money, they're deciding how to manage their portfolio, they're deciding what rate to give um, uh, banks who are holding reserves mm -hmm. at the Fed. Um, and so they are, are pinning down short rates and now affecting long rates as well. Um, so we saw the, the GDP number come out earlier today, 3.5%. Uh, that comes obviously after a very divergent uh, first couple of quarters of the year. The first quarter was in negative territory. A lot of that obviously because of the weather and the shortfalls where that is concerned. The second quarter obviously built back up. Third quarter was probably a little bit better than some analysts expected. Going forward, if we keep these numbers in the 3 3.5% range, or maybe even we start to see 4 then that, that's probably the first real sign that we're seeing the type of growth that this country needs to see. I think that's right. And so I think that uh, Yellen's task over the next um, year or so should be to keep conditions accommodative mm -hmm. despite QE having ended. Um, it's exactly what they've said that they'll do to um, keep basically – their portfolio, the size that it is, mm -hmm. um, by reinvesting the maturing MBS and treasuries. Um, and that should help to keep longer rates low, which should help to, to stimulate, um, to stimulate, I guess, a, a growth through the channels that the Fed can. So then is, is your belief that, that interest rates are probably going to be kept very low, like around zero? Uh, for the foreseeable future, maybe through 2015, and it might not be until 2016 that we start to see interest rates maybe start to bump up? That's certainly possible. Um, it all depends on how the outlook evolves and how expectations evolve. Um, so I guess my point estimate would be that rates might begin to change at the end of next year, at the mm. end of 2015. But indeed, it's possible that this could drag on um, longer yeah um we we seem to be in sort of a good we seem to be having a relatively good momentum and pace right now yeah. um however as you know um one data point does not a trend make <laughs> exactly unfortunately so. unfortunately that is that is correct yeah. um and uh as we have mentioned on on this show on a few occasions uh we will be keeping 
uh, pretty much everybody abreast of, of a lot of the data as we go forward. Krista, thanks for coming in. I appreciate the uh, the insight on the, on uh, the QE and obviously on the Fed as well. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. Great to have you here. Krista Schwartz, who is an assistant professor of finance here at the Wharton School. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.